0: everybody welcome to a special edition of the afghanistan project podcast uh, michael is out today but i'm here with jeff Faniff from no one left behind you guys will recognize him from our very first episode and we're gonna talk about last week's house foreign affairs committee hearing which was the first of their series of hearings they say on the afghanistan withdrawal and why that was a failure and how we can better Um, prepare for future events like this and what we can still do to help the people that we've left behind or the people who are here who don't have pathways uh, forward to citizenship still. Um, It was a five-hour, ten-minute hearing for those of you who weren't able to watch it, but I absolutely recommend that if you have five hours and ten minutes, listen. It's um, full of heartfelt stories, full of heartbreaking stories, Um, lots of experts from the evacuation with very important information about the uh, the withdrawal itself and then what we need to do going forward. So um, Jeff, I'd love to know what your takeaways are, what I've missed in the grand overview, um, and what were your, your thoughts where your name was actually read out during the uh, event itself, so.
1: Yeah, thank you, Beth, and thank you so much for having me. I think the hearing for me was really powerful. Um, in part because I've experienced you know, the evacuation in the last year and a half plus of these efforts. And so it sort of brought all of that to a head. But I think in addition, it was really powerful to see members of Congress forced to confront the reality of what happened and the work that we've all been doing ever since. I think a lot of us were deeply concerned that this would be a pure uh, political moment used to score political points. And I think that part of the reason it wasn't was that those witnesses, the veterans and refugee advocates who were there, they set the tone early on that they were there for solutions and they were there for the purpose of demanding that from Congress instead of seeking political recriminations. It really, it stood with me that Pete Lucier from Team America Relief, you know, one of the key points he made in his opening statement was, it's not too late. And I think that's true, um, but it's getting too late if they don't start to take action at a governmental level. and so. That's where I think the hearing was was deeply important, um, and thankfully, for the most part, avoided the bipartisan bickery that really could have made it useless from the perspective of those who have been doing the work.
0: It's absolutely true. I saw that as well. There was, there were some, some folks who really got under my skin with their attempts to, you know, waffle back and forth about whether Trump or Biden is to blame. And in the end, I think what really matters is that we're moving forward. Or, forward on the fronts that they identified as being problematic, our SIV program still not helping all of the SIV applicants, um, uh, not fully understanding how there was that breakdown in communication as to whether uh, targets could be engaged by Marines on the ground, especially um, Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews had a very moving, opening testimony about having uh, possibly the suicide bomber who would later kill over 100 Afghans and 13 US service members in his sights and not being able to engage that target because the higher ups didn't know whether he could engage that target. Um, there were a lot, of, a lot of those kinds of issues identified and then the fact that the people who were doing a lot of the work were people like yourself who, <clears throat> veterans, um, volunteers, people who were not employed by the U.S. government at the time, but were doing, you know, taking on the lion's share of that operation. And I think there were a lot of things identified that would be great moving forward. But one thing that really struck me is that so many of those committee members had a very good understanding of what happened. Mm -hmm. And... At the same time, it was my question is, why was this not brought up earlier? If this is something you all understand and you know how important it is and how terrible this is for, for veterans experiencing moral injury and still being asked to take on so much of uh, the struggle of supporting Afghans who are left behind, who don't have employment, who are waiting on SIVs. If you know that, why is it just now that we're hearing about it as a nation?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I've learned over the last year of doing advocacy work on behalf of our Afghan allies is that Congress operates with a lot of different and sometimes conflicting priorities. Uh, And and politicians who run their offices are are governed by the politician's hierarchy of needs, where their chief concern is getting reelected, and then everything else sort of filters after that. And so sometimes you have to force their hand and make them do their job. I think in this case, part of the reason we had this hearing was that... Uh, For the majority, it was an attempt to, you know, score political points that but that makes that makes our incentives align in the sense that they at least want to have the conversation now, a conversation that has been largely ignored for much of the last year. Um, But it struck me as well that, you know, despite the fact that there have been pushes for legislation and sort of fights on the Hill about this and, you know, plenty of uh, sort of sound bites from folks in Washington there hasn't been the degree of action that we all know that our allies desperately need things that could be done if congress could you know get together and get this get this done in a lot of ways and so yeah i mean i agree with you i was you know surprised that many of them were so read in they were clearly well prepared often by their staff um and different members of congress knew it to, to different degrees knew what was truly going on um but i think you know, what, I, what I'm what i cautiously optimistic for is that this is the beginning of a process that forces Congress to reckon with the situation as it stands now. Not necessarily just to reflect on what happened in August of 2021, but to wrestle with, there's a situation on our hands that the American government uh, is, you know, to a large degree responsible for, and they need to do something about it.
0: Absolutely, and one of the big things, so accountability was brought up a mm-hmm. lot. And I think it's important when you talk about accountability it needs to not be the blame game because like you said, it's, it's moving forward. But one of the big things with moral injury in particular, which was brought up on multiple occasions, moral injury and the fact that veteran suicide has spiked in the immediate aftermath of the withdrawal and that it's continued because veterans who gave so much in Afghanistan feel that they perhaps, um, their service was not important and meaningful or that, um, you know, like the one the veteran community that has been supporting efforts ongoing and is just totally burned out and have exhausted savings accounts and have lost marriages, lost lots of things, jobs, uh, homes, that, you know, how do we have accountability for that without playing the blame game? What do you think is the way to go forward with that? I
1: think you're touching on something that is really important here, and that's how do we define accountability? You know, on the one hand, uh, in the military, after every operation, a training operation or real world, we do an after action report and we carefully scrub what we did and review our tactics and our procedures and think about what worked and what didn't. You know, in the Marine Corps, those always start with sort of the lowest ranking person in the room speaks first, because you don't want the squad leader or the platoon commander to say one thing and then somebody be afraid to contradict them because they're of a lower rank. And I think perhaps to some degree, what we saw in the House Foreign Affairs Committee was some reckoning of that. They started with the veterans who were helping, with the enlisted Marine who was there, an enlisted Army medic who was there, um, and and got closest to the ground truth. Because the the fact is, those who saw it firsthand really know that, and um, and I think that's important. But I think if accountability means you know trying to score political points and trying to you know use that to influence elections down the road, that's not what the veterans who have been doing this work are here for. We don't, uh, we're not standing by to see. Who can score the most points again? Against which presidential administration? Four administrations yeah. oversaw the war in Afghanistan. Four administrations made a lot of mistakes. You know, fundamentally, uh, if all we get out of this is a you know Trump versus Biden blame game, then our Congress is failing our veterans. And instead, what we want to see is a, a detailed look at what happened, lessons learned, so that it doesn't happen again and then the opportunity to move on and fix the problems that can still be fixed to include the 160,000 plus SIV applicants who are still waiting to get their visas. Um, I've done a lot of reading over the course of the last year and when you read about the withdrawal from Vietnam you see that there are so many frightening echoes where we didn't learn from history and it repeated itself. You know everything from you know the decision to not to start to withdraw and evacuate SIV applicants early because it would signal a lack of faith in the Afghan government. A very similar thing happened in Vietnam. Uh, You see service members going above and beyond the call of duty, sometimes against orders to get people out. We saw that as well in Vietnam. Um, And and the fact is that our government hasn't learned that at the end of a war, when you've got a withdrawal coming up and it's looking like it's gonna be messy, you can't just wish that away for the sake of optics. Uh, And and, and that was the case very much with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. My hope, though, is that that accountability translates into action because otherwise this is just a lot of sound and fury and isn't going to help anyone that we still desperately need to help.
0: Absolutely. It's one thing when I was, I think it was during my internship with the House Oversight Committee back in 2008, I want to say, we were looking at. I was looking at like the cords program in Vietnam and how that was similar to things going on in Afghanistan. I mean, it's been a, there have been correlation points throughout that have been missed Mm -hmm. and this should not have been one. And I desperately hope that whatever is brought up from this is a, a data point for the future for politicians, for military leaders, so that this doesn't happen again, because it never should have happened. And there were so many points at which it could have been improved. but. It's interesting. I, I don't know that I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I've talked about it on my social media quite a lot that, um, prior to the Afghanistan withdrawal, I was definitely in more right-wing political circles and I felt that, uh, anybody on the other side probably hated me and that, you know, we, there was no, these lines had been drawn and ever since working in the withdrawal, I've been working with people from all over the political spectrum and it's made me drop my previous politics. Mm -hmm. I don't, I could care less about politics at this point in my life. What I care about is helping the people of Afghanistan. And that's, it's been this amazing point of commonality where, where people from everywhere are coalescing to help other humans Mm -hmm. and that's where I think this could go from something that's, you know, Biden has done a terrible thing. Biden could do something amazing here. He could make the difference that helps all of these people who've been stuck that we left behind. And I think that that could create a point of, of togetherness and commonality for the entire country to come around and say, look, we took a situation that was negative and we turned it into a positive. And, and, And it would help with moral injury. It would help all of the humans who are currently in such a horrible state. Mm -hmm. Um, It might be difficult, you know, you would still have the women living under the Taliban, which was brought up at the hearing because it happened on International Women's Day. Mm -hmm. And obviously you can't talk about the withdrawal without talking about the effect that it's had for Afghan women, but at least it would begin to resolve some of these really gaping wounds that are going on. And Biden has the power to do that i think um i don't know what are your do you think he has the power to do that if he wants to
1: well i think first what i'll say is one silver lining to the awful chaos of the u.s withdrawal was to see how many americans of all different races religions creeds backgrounds uh and certainly politics dropped everything to pitch in and do the right thing and help they saw a crisis and they took off their political jersey whatever it might have been and, and work to do the right thing and that is the beauty and I think it's it's an important lesson about America that if if we realize we you know forget about which political team we decide to be on and just think about doing the right thing and finding solutions amazing amazing things can happen um, so I yeah. think that's important and I'll say that you know I work with folks in the administration and I know there are a lot of incredible dedicated people at the State Department at the NSC uh, who who care about this issue and and want to do the right thing um, But I think they come up against uh, a host of different problems or different uh, sort of frictions. And some of that is just the need for uh, there's a lot of different priorities in a world where there's a Russian invasion of Ukraine and all of these other worldwide issues to focus on. And so uh, that's part of it. But I think there was a sense in certain circles that the Biden administration wanted to put Afghanistan in the rearview mirror no matter what. Um, And I think, you know, if the administration makes the purely political decision that, you know, the withdrawal was a terrible thing for them politically, and so therefore they don't want to touch it, they're making a huge mistake because a lot of the advocacy groups and organizations working to help, they want to hand this administration a win. They don't care who gets credit for it. They want to hand this administration a win to say, yes, the withdrawal was chaotic, but now we're the ones fixing it. And I think there's potential there. And, and, and I'd like to believe that the hardworking folks who are making these decisions can hear that voice and, and choose to do so and, and do more. You know there are things that can be done uh at an administration level to fix this but we also need congress to put aside you know their own um political issues and and work together to find solutions here and you know one of the really key things we want to see is a fix to the siv program you know it's the one clear pathway for people who worked alongside our troops like it's unimpeachable in so many ways um it's hard to find even folks who are uncomfortable with immigration issues who will speak out against this there are some But they're few and far between. And I think they get, um, you know, they hear it from America's veterans when they refuse or when they get in the way of fixing that. You know, and we need to make it permanent. We need to make sure this isn't a program we have to authorize year on year. And it should probably, if we want to reflect and find accountability and then look forward, we should probably make the program permanent and make sure it applies to those in future conflicts or those in other theaters of the global war on terror. You know, there are interpreters who did the same job in Syria, 10 miles over the Iraq border, and they're not eligible for an SIV, um, but their you know counterpart doing the same job 11 miles to their east is. And so th- these are things that are fairly common sense when you really break it down. But we need uh, we need the U.S. government to step in and get it done.
0: I agree. And I think the same is true of the P1 and P2 programs and the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. Those were brought up uh, to a minimal extent at the hearing. And at one point, I think one of the congressmen recommended, you know, should we start a new category? And I wanted to scream and say, before you do that, get through the people who you have. I every day have P1 and P2 applicants saying, what about me? What Mm -hmm. about me? Please raise my voice because they're not getting processed. They're stuck in Pakistan, many of them. They're Mm -hmm. stuck in They are stuck in hellacious situations as are our SIV applicants. Their kids often can't go to school. They're losing so much. We we here were so upset when our children had to go to school virtually or had to go to school in masks. These Afghan children oftentimes can't go to school at all. If they're in Pakistan, they can't go at all because they're refugees and they're not allowed. So, you know, I think we need to have a heart for what All of these Afghans who we promise to help are being asked to go through and we need to understand it better so that, um, we can, you know, support them and and try to figure out a way that doesn't just include more levels of bureaucracy or more levels of, and then this program and this program, no, what we have needs to be followed through upon. We need to follow through on our promise. I think that's right. We haven't done that. It's very, uh, it's hard to watch that, um. It is. But it does seem that there's so much, um, they were very fervent about the need to do these things. And I'm just very hopeful that that is followed through upon. That's right. I wondered for you, because you're looking at this as somebody who was so instrumental in the HK evacuations. And then now you have, you know, stopped the... It was your MBA program, right, that you were in, and then you stopped doing that so that you could be the director of advocacy for No One Left Behind. So, how was that looking through those two different vantage points at the hearing?
1: Mm. Well, first, I, I don't know that I can call myself uh, instrumental in the guy evacuation, especially when you're seeing the testimony of people like Tyler Vargas Andrews and uh, Aidan Gunderson and. And folks who were on the ground uh i did my small part and i'm you know proud to have done that but i can't i can't take any credit compared to what what those folks did um you know especially especially the abbey gate marines who got so many people out for me um but i think for me you know uh, it was it was hard to reflect on what happened at h and why it's so important but i think that sergeant vargas andrews really said it so well when he told the story of the, the child that he reunited um, with their family, I thought that was so important. And something he said at the end, uh, in effect, he said, "You know, for all my wounds, you know, he lost limbs." And he said, "I would happily, I would happily take that in order to have that moment where I save that family." And I think that's true for so many of the Marines who were there, the soldiers and sailors and airmen. They were more than willing to sacrifice because it, they were the the last, you know, last line of hope for so many people. Um, and I've talked to a lot of those Marines. I serve with some of those Marines. I was really fortunate to know, um, Sergeant Vargas Andrews company commander really, really closely. And he's one of the people who got so many people in the gate for me. Um, you know, and so when we reflect back on that, it does make me think, you know, about the why and what we do and why so many people have made incredible sacrifices to continue this work, to really continue their mission that they were on the ground to do was save lives. And, and, you know, create some semblance of order in this otherwise chaotic exit. You know, that that really stayed with me. Um, but something else that Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann said also resonated, which is that, you know, America's veterans and the folks who have been doing this work have been on the world's longest 911 call. And for so many of us, it feels that way. You know, we reflect often with my team at No One Left Behind and also with many others in this space about the fact that, you know, you get a signal message in the middle of the night, and you're going to wake up and check it, even though you never otherwise might have, right? Because it might be life or death for somebody that you care about. Um, and we're still doing it now that we are, you know, a year and a half removed from what happened at H-Kaya. um, We're still doing that work, and and still deeply committed to it. And you know, I think that's a trauma in and of itself for for many folks, um, especially those who are you know sort of uninitiated to this kind of uh, this kind of thing. Um, And it's forced so many people who served in afghanistan served in iraq served in the global war on terror to reopen a lot of wounds um that perhaps they felt like were behind them because they're still months and months on end working 18-hour shifts to to save people um you know and that's i think that's something that the government needs to know i appreciated that congressman crow said you know whatever you think of the strategic decisions that happened in Afghanistan, what you did was worth it. He addressed sort of the veterans in the room and in the audience and watching it on TV. And, and I appreciate that because I think it is important to separate a strategic failure, like what happened in the end of Afghanistan from what thousands of veterans did there um, and and sacrificed for and lost friends over. Um, I think it's important to remember that. Uh, it doesn't mean it's easy. No,
0: and I, I think I have two Responses to those comments—it's—it's it's right. It's, um, I think it's that memory of all those sacrifices that helps motivate veterans to continue fighting. But you're right; it is—it's not tenable. And one thing that was mentioned a lot was the public-private partnership that's now existing between the care team and the mm-hmm. State Department and all of these volunteer groups who are giving their time freely to the State Department now. Yeah, I might mention, um, but. You know, there was a question at one point of maybe you could pass that work on, but I wondered, would you trust passing that on? If somebody told you, you don't have to answer signal calls anymore because the government's going to do that for you or, you know, the care team's going to take that on, would would you want that or would you rather be the one doing it because you know that the way that it's getting done is, I mean, there hasn't been any immediacy really, for the care team to pull people out at a, um, I think it's still 100, 100 Afghans, 200 Afghans a week coming out through the care team. So mm-hmm. would you feel comfortable passing on that role to the government at this point?
1: I mean, I think that, you know, one, I, I will give credit where it's due to the public-private partnership that has developed with these evacuation organizations, relocation organizations, and, um, and the State Department. I, the State Department, I don't think I'll ruffle any feathers by saying this, but they're not known for their innovation. Uh, and, and as a bureaucracy, there are times where I reflect on how many levels of approval are required. It makes them, you know, bureaucracy of the Marine Corps seem actually pretty convenient. Um, so understanding those constraints, but, but to your point, I think that this is imprinted on so many of us now, I think it, it, it's not as simple as, Hey, you know, send up your roster and you're good. You can go home now. Um, I think the only thing will, that'll really let us take a breath and really fully, you know, move on is when we get the job done, if we finish the mission. You know, if Mm -hmm. the the government needs to play its role in that, right? They need to fix the the backlog in the SIV program. They need to fix the program itself. Um, They need to do more to increase throughput so that we're not relying on one single processing facility in Doha, um, that we're still waiting on an, an alternative to that. Um, so they have a role and they can they can get us there quicker but I don't think for any of us it's as simple as you know US government's got it now you guys can all take a break thanks for thanks for what you did um, because I don't think any of us can put this down mentally um, until until we see it actually you know the people we need to get out getting out and it's just not happening at a high enough rate right now.
0: And so is that? I guess closing i'd like to give you the final word since i got the first word um you know what are your hopes going forward and then what are two can you speak for no one left behind what are their hopes going forward
1: sure um well, well i'll say first that you know no one left behind has acknowledged the fact that this is going to be a longer term mission and we're planning and prepping to continue this work for years and years to come and so for those that are worried that the Americans who are still helping Afghans are going to close up shop. We're here and we're committed for the long run, as long as this takes. We would love to work ourselves out of a job and to be able to, um, you know, uh, have no no more need in for the populations that we serve. But we acknowledge that this is going to be years. I mean, the the Vietnam Relocation Office at the State Department didn't shut down until decades after the conflict ended. Um, so we have to we have to bear that in mind, and we have to then try to do better. Um, but for us, what we really want to see is legislation that's going to fix the process to get people out more quickly. You know, um, Congressman Moulton, Congressman Crow, Senator Shaheen are all working on fixes to the uh, existing Afghanistan SIV legislation, um, working to fix the COM approval process, make it uh, realistic to verify employment. I mean, right now, as we've talked about at length, you know, you're required to go find employer letters from a, an employer that may be deceased, that the company may no longer exist. Um, if you worked on a classified contract, that's even harder. And so um, the, we need the Congress to step in and fix that. And as I mentioned before, I think it's not just about putting a bandaid on what happened and trying to you know, slowly fix that, but also looking forward and saying, how do we ensure this never happens again? And that's where it comes in to make sure that this program is enduring and will be applicable in future conflicts because we don't wanna find ourselves in another war uh, years down the road and then realize we have to reinvent the wheel on some sort of SIV program. And so those are, those are sort of our key priorities. But I think my personal ones, and, and most of the people in this line of work have stories like this, and I know you do, are the few cases that I still have personal connection to or have been working with since HKIA. You know, I think of one uh, interpreter who served uh, with an army unit in combat where his company commander received the Silver Star for Valor. This interpreter was on that operation with him. And his passports were burned by the US Embassy when we withdrew he had to resource passports, he had to get himself to Pakistan. And now he's, you know, eight, nine months post interview and medical, and still waiting on some final check. Um, and that's unacceptable. That's completely unacceptable. Um, and so, you know, for, for cases like that, the hard ones, uh, or for cases where somebody didn't apply until the neo and and now they're, you know, far back in the line, I think, for a lot of us, that's our, our hope is the day that we can welcome them at, a, at an American airport, you know, and I've got a box of toys already for, uh, you know, this interpreter's kids for when he shows up here. So I'll meet him at the airport and hopefully drape him in an American flag and say, sorry for what you went through, but, um, you know, thank God you're finally here. So th- those are the, the things that, that I look forward to and hope we'll close this out. Um, I-, I did want to say, too, I think, you know, a few things from the hearing that are really, really worth mentioning. One is that, as I mentioned before, I think the, the interviewees, the, the witnesses really set the tone. And that from the opening moment held Congress accountable to avoid the political nonsense that they're inclined to dive into. Uh, I thought France Huang, you know, his personal story was so incredible. Um, he, you know, left Vietnam, uh, when the U S withdrew in 1975, graduated from West Point, worked in the white house, went back to the army and deployed with special forces has become an incredibly successful entrepreneur. Like that's the American dream. And that's the embodiment of, of this. Uh, And I think I'm really grateful that he was there because it set the tone of, you know, I am the face of this kind of operation. I am the embodiment of that American dream. uh, And don't forget that. You know, I thought having uh, Aiden Gunderson and Tyler Vargas Andrews there was absolutely critical because they were on the ground and they did so well uh, conveying their story and and asking that Congress does something to fix this. Um, And I have to give credit to, you know, Pete Lussier, uh, who I've worked with closely, and Camille Mackler, same, same thing there. You know, Camille did a really good job of talking about the policy issues that are mm-hmm. so critical to this. Mentioning, you know, the Afghan Adjustment Act and the permanent SIV program in her testimony. Um, recognizing that it's not just a, a localized problem to that, but there's a huge systemic immigration problem in this country that neither political party truly wants to touch and fix. Um, and really refocusing this on what can be done. The fact that it's not too late to take action.
0: Yeah, I think those are all excellent points. And I really do hope if, if our listeners have not watched it, give it a viewing, especially if you're feeling in any less than positive way about the situation. I think that it's, it's something that leaves you feeling like there is hope, you know, even if you've seen all of the horrors of all of this, I think it's important to see those horrors addressed and to see that, uh, yes, there was some political nonsense, but it was very minimal, and everybody really does want to find a way to move forward, and we just have to figure out how to do it. So I'm so grateful you were here with us, Jeff. Uh, I hope that they do a lot more hearings like this and that they really start to move forward for everybody's sake.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Beth. It's so critical that you're having these conversations. Um, and I'll say after my last appearance on the podcast, there was this incredible moment just earlier today um, where uh, Ellen and Judy from uh, Keeping Our Promise up in Rochester, New York, reached out because they had heard an episode of the podcast and heard me tell the story of the uh, the group from Skatistan, the teenage skateboarders who, who got out through the Marines at Abbey Gate uh, and reached out to tell me that. They've helped resettle them safely in Rochester, New York, and so it's really some incredible connectivity. And there's such an incredible community that's working on this. So it was an exciting moment for me today.
0: That's like the crystallizing thing is that all of us doing this work uh, in the quiet recesses of our homes or wherever, you know, there's there's these moments that make it all worth it. And that's definitely one of them. I'm so glad to share it here. And thanks for coming on again.
1: Thank you so much oh. for having me.
0: And everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting Afghans. And uh, as always, Tasha Core, and we hope to see you again soon.